Well, we are continuing this morning a brief series of messages entitled, Everything That I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Sunday School. And the basic idea, if you watched along with us last week, and if you didn't, you can certainly go back on our website and view that. The basic idea is that the lessons you weren't learned when you were really little, you learned in coloring books and on felt boards, those lessons you learned when you were really, really little, those were the biggest lessons of all. And as I've thought about my early days in Sunday school, all those decades ago now, I've gone back in my mind and I've been thinking about my earliest days in public school. And I was thinking the other day about my first day in kindergarten. And maybe you remember your first day of kindergarten, but I kind of realized that I remember almost next to nothing about my first day in kindergarten. Uh, and that's kind of unusual, isn't it? Because that's, that's a big day, especially for parents, because this is a day when you have invested five years of your time and your money and your life into this little critter, and then you just kick that baby bird right out of the nest and they've got a flower or not. But I don't remember hardly anything about my first day of kindergarten, except I remember sitting at a little table in a little chair with an oversized pencil with a piece of paper in front of me that had the shape of a letter A on it. And they made us trace that letter A until we understood that this was an A. This was the first letter of the alphabet. This stands for apple. And I didn't really understand that at the time, but on my first day of kindergarten, Miss Hall, bless her heart, was instilling in us the very first lesson that everything else we ever learned would be built on. This was the gateway to all of the knowledge that we would learn during our educational career. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a lesson from Scripture that I think is the spiritual equivalent of learning to write the letter A. It's not very complex, it's not very complicated, but it's absolutely essential. And it's a lesson that, as simple as it is, some of us struggle with the re- will struggle the rest of our lives to learn this vital lesson. So think about it like this. Let's say that on that first day of kindergarten, somehow I never learned the letter A. And I never learned B or C or anything that comes after. But somehow I managed to go all the way through high school and never cracked a book, never did my homework. I know nobody's ever graduated high school and never done their homework or cracked a book, but I did all of that, and the day comes when I have to sit down and take my SAT, and I've never learned that first lesson. I'm doomed, right? I am hopelessly lost. And so it is today that if you miss this lesson, and some of you have missed it, your life right now is just a swirl of confusion because you've missed this lesson. Here it is. He really does have the whole world in his hands. And some of you have never really grasped that. You wrestle with that constantly in your life because you're trying to navigate all the complexity of life in this world without that first lesson in a biblical way of thinking. And so maybe your heart lacks joy and maybe you live in fear. Maybe you really do wonder at times, is God really going to take care of me? Maybe sometimes you find yourself falling into the same old patterns and the same old sins because you have missed this lesson. You look around and you see nothing but chaos and you've never learned how to lean into the truth that God really is in control. I mean, just to be honest, sometimes as a pastor, after I've been pastoring for 12 years, there are some days when it's a struggle for me to really see God's handiwork at work in every detail of my life. But today we're going to look at a place in the Bible where we learn exactly that lesson. And here's the lesson that we learn. He really does have the world in his hands. And that is the best place for it to be. So I want to read today for you the entirety of the 104th Psalm. 
So if you have a Bible with you there, you can certainly follow along, but it should be coming up on your screen about any second. Through the wonders of technology, Psalm 104 teaches us that he really does have the whole world in his hands, and that really is the best place for it to be. So let's read this great psalm. Psalm 104.1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took the flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heaven dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Now, sometimes when we read the Psalms, it's very, very easy for us to forget that we're actually reading songs. In fact, that's what the word psalm means. What we've just read is music. It doesn't look much to us like music because there are no notes on the page, and many of us couldn't read them even if there were, and the words don't rhyme. And so we forget that what we are reading here is an ancient song from the people of God. And this psalm, like so many, is a song that really is all about singing. And you can see that in this verses as the writer reminds us that God is worth our best songs. That we could sing to Him, we should praise Him, we should worship and enjoy Him. But why? Why should we sing to God? Why is it that the faith of God's people is a singing faith that has been thousands of years ago when this was written? The answer is because our God is great. 
That's what the psalmist says in verse number 1. Our God is clothed with splendor and majesty. Our God is a God who has, as the psalmist says, covered every detail of our lives with His fingerprints, and He is at work in every single element of creation in a way that displays His wisdom, that displays His power, and that displays His glory. That's what the psalmist is writing about in Psalm 104, that God is the God who made everything. God is the God who sustains everything that He made. God is a God who guides everything that He has created, and He is a God who provides for His creation. And he does that in such a way that we are joyful in it and that he is glorified through it. And so what the psalmist is writing about here in Psalm chapter 104 is exactly what they told you in Sunday school all those many years ago. He really does have the whole world in his hands. He's talking here about the doctrine of God's providence, of God's governing his creation. And so what I want to do today from this psalm is I want to pick out three details about God's providence that help us to learn He really does have the whole world in His hands and that is the best possible place for it to be. So the first detail that we'll look at today is in verses 1 through 9 and we'll call this foundations of providence. Before we can talk properly about the providence of God, we've got to do what the psalmist does here and we've got to lay down some groundwork so we're all on the same page. Now when you read these verses of Scripture, you get the sense that the psalmist really believes that the God of heaven made everything from alligators to zebras and that he guides sovereignly everything from atoms to zygotes. And what he's talking about here is the providence of God who is governing everything that he made. But what is God's providence? God's providence is probably best defined as his continued management or government of everything that he has made. So before we can understand how God governs what he made, we have to back up one step and we have to talk about God making everything. Which if you read verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 104 is exactly what the psalmist does. He gives us this sweeping poetic vision of God and his greatness in creation. And he uses words about God that we don't use, right? He, look at verse number 1. He says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. To us, God's all right. God's useful. God's part of the story. But to hear in Psalm 104, this is a God that is worth singing to because this God is great. This God is majestic. This God is a God who is covered over with light. What the psalmist wants us to see in Psalm 104 is he wants us to see the God of heaven with galaxies dripping from his fingertips. He wants us to see the God of heaven who speaks the word and worlds that did not exist fly into being in obedience to his command. And if we believe in that God, folks, we will have a God who is worth worshiping. You know, one of the most disappointing things about the whole coronavirus nightmare that we're living through, for me, one of the most disappointing things, first of all, is that on Sunday mornings I've had to watch myself preach, and that's been terrible. But second, one of the most disappointing things is as we were um, replaying recorded parts of music from our worship services, I got to watch some of y'all sing in church. And you know what I found out about some of our church family? Some of y'all don't sing. And you know why you don't sing? It's not because you can't sing. You don't sing because you don't believe in God. At least you don't believe in this God. If you believed in this God that was majestic and full of splendor and covered over with light and who stretches out the heavens like a tent to dwell in, you would sing. 
You couldn't help but sing in majesty to this God. So maybe what we need to do before we do anything else today is you need to let me introduce you to the God of the Bible. And we're introduced to the God of the Bible in Isaiah chapter number 40 and verse number 12 when it asks this question, Who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with his span? Who stretches out his hand and measures everything that is? Who is it that encloses the dust of the earth in a measure and weighs the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Has God ever asked you for your advice? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. That's what the writer is saying in Psalm 104. This is our God. And everything that he is going to say about God and his governing the world will come after this truth that God is the God who made everything. And because God made it, he can do with it exactly as he pleases. He can govern it how he wants. He can rule it however he sees fit because it is his. In fact, verse number 24 of Psalm 104 says, In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. They're not just creatures. They're His creatures. And so the Bible teaches us. You're just a couple pages away in your Bible. Psalm 135 and verse number 6. You should see it on your screen here. But it says, Psalm 135 and verse number 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And so this is really the first day kindergarten lesson of Christianity. It's right there in the opening salvo of the Bible. What are the first words of the Bible in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there was nothing but God. There was nothing. There was no recipe for him to follow. There were no ingredients for him to use. There was nothing but God. But because in that nothingness there was God, there was everything necessary for everything that is. And so we read in the Word of God that our God thinks and he speaks and he acts and he creates everything from nothing. And so on those first days of creation, think about this, birds were singing a song that they had never heard to a son they had never seen. All of a sudden there they were. All of a sudden, on the first day of creation, there was snow that never fell, that was melting on grass that never grew. That's what our God did in creation, that He spoke and it came into being. And so everything that is depends upon God for its existence. But unlike God, we are not self-sufficient. We are not self-existent. We depend on Him to be. God does not depend on anything outside of God to be God. He is completely self-sufficient completely self-existent because God is your maker and you are a thing made. And this is one of the most important concepts of Christian thinking that even Christians that have been following the Lord Jesus for decades still fight to believe. And that is a distinction between a creature and its creator. Here's the fact, here's the fact from Scripture. In some respects, you have more in common today with a caterpillar and a cuttlefish than you do God. Because like the caterpillar and like the cuttlefish, you are a thing that is made. God is your maker. But see, this is where our problem in our hearts, this is the essence of it. Because we want to do everything that we can to blur the lines of that distinction between ourselves and God. 
And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. And as you read those verses that are on your screen, if you think about what Paul is saying, Paul is saying that we want to do every single thing that we can to assign the rights and the privileges and the power and even the responsibility of things that have been made, including us. We want to take all of that 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 should be God's and we want to take it on ourselves. And that trickles down to every single area of life. It trickles down to little kids in their first day of school when they are being taught that they can be anything they want to be. When they are being taught that they can do anything that they want to do. When they are being taught that they should find their truth and they should embrace their truth and they should form their own future. Do you realize that when the devil tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, that the first temptation was not just for Eve to rewrite her place in the story, but the temptation really was for Eve to believe she had the right to rewrite her place in the story. The devil was tempting Adam and Eve Take on yourself the responsibilities of becoming God. So we become self-sufficient. We believe we are self-reliant. We believe that we are self-determining. And so we look out in this world and we say we are going to actualize our truth and we are going to live our destiny. And what is the result of our believing that lie? The result of our believing that lie is Caitlyn Jenner. That we can be and become anything that we feel like we can create ourselves to be. But folks, that is a self-destructive and a self-defeating way to live. It's self-destructing because it always sets us against the God who has actually made us. And it's self-defeating because as soon as I take on myself the responsibility of being God, as soon as I'm trying to handle things that only God can handle, then my mind is going to be filled with worry. I'm trying to fix every problem, control every situation and every person and manage everything around me. And many of you have never learned this important lesson from the Bible. God is God and you're not. God is God and you're not. And if you could get that today, your life would change. So quit trying to be God. You're not cut out for it. God created everything that is, including you. And as your maker and as the maker of all things, God can do with his creation whatever he pleases. So that's the foundations of providence. Let's get to the second detail, and this is really the explanation of providence. As the writer continues in Psalm 104, there is an outworking of everything that has come before. And you get the sense here from these verses that the psalmist really does believe that God is guiding everything from the metaphysical to the microscopic. It's all his. He talks about God setting the earth on its pillars. He talks about God calling forth the waters, God establishing the boundaries of the ocean, God making the grass grow, and God making sure that the animals have plenty to eat. In fact, if you want to know something really, really cool about the Bible, the Bible talks about rain a lot, but the Bible never says that it rained. The Bible always says that the Lord caused it to rain or that the Lord made it rain. And that's what you see in Psalm 104, right? That God is actively, continually sustaining and guiding everything that he made. In every area of creation, and we'll get specific with that in just a minute, but big strokes, this means that there has never been one leaf that has ever blown into your yard that God is not the one who sent it there. Now, I know that's aggravating in the fall when you've got to get all that out of there. I get that. But thank God that, you know, he's sovereign over that. There has never been, get this, Right now, during the season of of history that we're living in, governments in our country are trying to decide, should we open our beaches or should we close our beaches? That's what men are trying to do. God is determining which grains of sand on what beaches get wet when. That's what God is doing. And this applies to 
all of creation as God is maintaining what he made. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse number 3 that the Lord Jesus is upholding everything with the word of his power. And then in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 11, the Bible says that God is working in and with what he made to fulfill his purposes. God works all things after the counsel of his will. So the created world that we live in is being guided by a personal God. And that personal God has goals that he will achieve. He has plans that he will accomplish. He has objectives that will be reached. He has made promises that will be kept because the psalmist says in Psalm 115 and verse number 3 that our God is in the heavens and he has done what he pleased. Now let me ask you today, why wouldn't God do what he pleases? What is going to keep God from doing what he pleases? My plans? Your plans? The plans of our government or some other government? Something in nature? Of course not. That's the biggest part of what it means for God to be God is that he can do whatever he wants to. And the writer here breaks this down to every conceivable aspect of our world. He says it's true in in the natural world when it comes to inanimate things like springs and valleys, even plant life that grows. He even talks about God ensuring that the animals are being fed. He talks about lion cubs that go out to eat. And I know that's kind of a bad deal for the gazelles, but, you know, everybody's got to eat. God takes care of the antelope, they get to eat grass, and then God takes care of the lion and they get to eat the antelope. But then the Bible says in verse number 23 that God's providence even extends to men. He says that man goes out to work and to his labor until the evening. So if you are going to be going to work tomorrow, why are you going to be going to work? You are going to work because you need to work. You need, you know, the cheddar in the bank so that you can pay the bills and so that you can continue to live. You have at some level, even if you hate your job, you have a desire to go to work to provide and to sustain your life. But that need, that desire, that ability, that job, every bit of that's been provided by God, who is orchestrating all of that for his purposes. In fact, the Bible says to us in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse number 1, great verse of Scripture, says that the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. We make our plans. God accomplishes his plans. The Bible says in Psalms 139 and verse number 16, this is a great passage of Scripture, says to us, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. God knew you before you were you. In your book, they were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is providentially guiding the affairs and the lives of people. Now, when we hear that, there's a lot of ways that we can misinterpret that and get really, really confused. And there are two kind of misrepresentations of God's providence that people seem to fall into. The first is really what is called deism. Deism was a popular philosophical movement in the 17th and 18th century. And basically the idea was that God, yes, started everything in motion and he kind of wound it up like a clock and he let it run and he left it alone. And God is not active in our world today and God is not working among us and God is not really doing anything to speak of in the world now. He started it and now we're just on our own. And I know that nobody listening to this today probably really believes that. But practically, day to day, we absolutely live like that's true. People in Alabama are deists, and they prove it when they don't pray. People in Alabama are deists, and they prove it when they don't seek God's wisdom for their lives. People in Alabama are deists, and they prove it when they're not thankful. We believe that God is not at work in our lives. But then on the other hand, the other opposite misrepresentation is fatalism. 
that is a belief that everything has been predetermined and we are just subject to all these plans that, that are going to determine our destiny. And we miss the idea that our God is a God of providence and a God of sovereignty, but our God is a personal God. He's a good God. And He has not left us up to luck, thank God. And He has not left us up to fate. Our lives are not the subject of chance, which, by the way, should be an encouragement to you during this season where everybody is afraid to go to Walmart because they're going to get a sickness that they can't control. That's absolutely correct. You cannot control the coronavirus. Even the Center for Disease Control can't control the coronavirus. But do you understand that your life is not the product of chance? Your days are determined not by luck. Your days are determined not even by your plans. Your days are determined by a good God. The Bible even says that God is so providential that He works in the affairs of nations. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. You see those verses as they're pulled up there. And the Bible tells us in those verses that the Lord removes kings and sets up kings. The person who's going to win our presidential election in fall of this year is the person that God has appointed to win it. That's the way God governs and the way God works. So in essence, the point you need to take from this is that God does not need your permission to be God. He does not need your permission to do anything. Why? Because God is God and you're not. That's what the Bible teaches us. And we should understand that either we believe this is true, that this God is our God, or we should become atheists. Because there's no consistent stopping place. There is no consistent stopping place in believing in the providence of God and absolute rejection of any divine being whatsoever. There's no place for you to stop. Because as soon as you start siphoning off parts of God's providence and giving them to people or giving them to events that God does not control, then you don't have any God left. You either believe this or you have the abyss of hopelessness. You either believe this and you have hope and you have joy and you have faith and you have confidence and worship or you become lifeless and dead and you live in fear because your world is a world of chaos. That's the only choices that you've got. You believe this and you have hope, you reject it and you lose everything. Those are the explanations of providence. But let's talk about the implications of it. And we'll finish up here today. We've talked about the foundations of it. We've talked about the explanations of it. Let's talk about the implications of it. What does it mean for me? What does the fact that God is providentially guiding the world, what does it mean for me? Well, admittedly, there are some challenges here, okay? There are some things that we could look at and think about as we talk about the providence of God that are going to leave us with a really bad existential migraine as we try and figure out how exactly God is governing the world. One of them, for instance, since you don't have anything else to do for the next couple of weeks, figure out the relationship of God's providence to man's libertarian free will. And so we look at this and we think, well, if God's providentially guiding everything, do I actually have any choices? Like, I'm pretty sure I got up this morning and decided what I was going to wear and what I was going to have for breakfast, but is that really what happened? Do I really have any choices? Are my choices real? Do my choices matter? And we have to say, of course, from the Word of God, our choices are real choices. Our choices have consequences. Our choices matter. And we will answer to this God for the choices that we make. But we also know 
from Scripture that every choice that we make, everything that we may choose to do, regardless of any area of life, it all comes under the providential purposes of God. And I can show you a really cool example of this if you want to follow along in your Bible. It's Job chapter number 1 and verse number 17. Uh, I'm taking it for granted that you know something about the story of Job. If you don't, let me just tell you it's not good. It's like a country music song. He loses everything in like five minutes, okay? And the Bible tells us in Job chapter 1 and verse number 17, says that the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Basically, a guy comes to Job and says, Job, you've lost everything, your kids are dead, and oh, by the way, this other guy has something to tell you. And the other guy tells him, Job, some guys came and killed all your servants and stole your camels. That's a bad day when your camels are all gone, okay? Who stole Job's camels? The Bible says the Chaldeans did, right? But doesn't the Bible also tell us earlier in Job chapter number 1 that it was the devil who came to God and said, Lord, why don't you give me permission to put my hands on all of his stuff and he won't worship you? But isn't it also true that God is the one who gave the devil permission to do that? And isn't it also true that Job would say, in just a few verses, he would say that God, had, that God was the one who had afflicted him? So who stole Job's camels? Was it the devil, was it God, or was it the Chaldeans? Yes. That's your answer. That those Chaldeans made a choice. And certainly there was satanic evil in that choice. But God's providential purposes were bigger than their choices. So that they worked all of it out for the purposes of God. Another challenge we have is the challenge of prayer. If God is guiding everything like this, why should I pray? Well, the easy answer is because God told you to pray. That's the only answer you need. Why, why should I pray? Do my prayers matter? Do my prayers actually accomplish everything? Well, I think that is, is totally a backward way to thinking. If God is not this God who is providentially in control of all things, if the whole world really is not in his hands, why in the world would you pray? Do you realize that every time you pray for God to heal somebody that you love who's sick, that is an admission that God has that sickness and that person in his hands? Do you know that every time that you thank God for a blessing, thank him for something he gives you, you are saying, Lord, this world is in your hands and you have turned it for my good. That every time you pray for God to save somebody that is lost, you are admitting, God, that is your work. And you have to do it. And in the end, we know that God has told us in his word that we should pray. But he's told us that he answers our prayers. That in his providence, God uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. And that's why we pray. Because God has chosen to use our prayers to accomplish the things he sets out to do now i know that ties us in all kinds of knots and you're probably thinking right now when i was six years old and i was learning about god having all of this in control in sunday school this is a whole lot easier to understand bob and larry and the veggie tales made this make a whole lot more sense yeah i get it i understand but if you read psalm 104 carefully you will see that the lord is using his providence to provide for his people and there is great comfort and knowing that the God who can bend every proton, every electron, and every neutron in this world. He can bend every molecule to his will. And he will do that to take care of his people. And the Bible shows us how he does it here in Psalm 104. It's in verse number 15. 
Now the Bible says that the Lord, verse 14, the Lord is, you know, raising up plants from the world. He's bringing forth food from the earth. Then he says in Psalm 104, 15, that the Lord gives wine to glad the heart of man. Now let me just stop right there and say that the reason Psalm 104, 15 is in the Bible, that statement about God giving us wine to gladden men's heart, the reason that's in the Bible is to prove that Baptists don't know the Bible as well as they think they do. But since I don't want to get fired, I'm going to move on to the next one. Notice what it says. It says, God gives oil to make his face shine. God has given us oil to make our face shine. What in the world does that mean? Well, remember, you're reading a book here that was written by people that lived thousands of years ago in the Mediterranean. And literally everything they did throughout their day, they used olive oil to do it. For these people, olive oil was deodorant, it was shampoo, it was makeup, it was medicine, and it was food. They used olive oil for everything. But what you may not know, what you may not know, is that not only did since that's true, everybody walked around smelling like a Caesar salad all the time. But for an olive tree to produce an olive, it has to have been in the ground growing for 15 years. So that means that for these people, or even for us, before we ever brushed the crust on our pizza, 15 years ago, God, at least 15 years ago, God put a tree in the ground to make sure our needs were met. Now he goes even further. He says he's given bread to strengthen man's heart. Bread is good for your heart. But if you think about if you had toast this morning or biscuits or waffles or whatever you had, whatever you know, part of the bread family you may have consumed today, at one time that bread was a plant. And that was a plant that was growing in the dirt that God made. And it was being nourished by rain that God sent or technology that was developed by men who were blessed by God to know how to do that. And it was growing under a sun that the Bible says here God made it to grow. How many months ago do you think it was that your toast was in the ground? How many days did it grow? How many people handled it before it got to you? A farmer harvested it. It went in the back of a truck. A truck driver took it to a place where it was processed. It's probably taken from there and it was taken to some kind of bakery where it was made. And then it was probably put on another truck and it came to your grocery store where you went and picked it up because some cashier bring it up for you. And there are countless choices, countless moments involved in you having breakfast today. And yet God knew years ago, years ago that you were going to have to eat this morning and God was moving things that you will never know about to satisfy your growling stomach because God always takes care of his people. So how do we respond to this? We respond to this the way the psalmist does here. We respond with singing. We respond with joy. We say, bless the Lord because my God who made it all is using it all to bless me. My God is being good to me. But if we're going to be honest, there are times in all of our lives when it doesn't feel very much like God is in control, right? Or at least if he is in control, he's not being very good to us. That's what the old Puritan writers used to call a hard providence. When the bottom falls out of life and God is doing things that we cannot understand. When we have pain, when we have grief, when we have sickness, when we have betrayal, when our hearts are broken, when whatever happens in our lives and we look up to God and we say, God, why didn't you stop it? Why did you allow it? Why did you fix it? Why did you let this person do what they did? Why did you send this in my life? God, where are you at? You're supposed to be good and you're supposed to be in control. I hope you know I don't have all the answers for that. But I can tell you this, based upon what the Word of God tells me. 
And that is that every single loose end that we simply cannot tie up, that God ties them up together in the shape of a cross. In the very, very first sermon any Christian ever preached on the day of Pentecost, Peter makes this statement. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Listen to what he says about the crucifixion of Jesus. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And thank God he's able to say, God raised him up. You see what he says there about the cross of Jesus? He says two incredible things. That on the one hand, the cross of Jesus is the most grim monument to man's choices. If you want to know where man's will will take him, that's where it'll take him. It'll take him to eradicating or attempting to eradicate the Lord Jesus. Man at his worst wishing violence on the Son of God. That is the heart of man on display fully. And yet at the cross we also see the heart of God on display fully because God, who had a determined counsel beforehand, who had plans that he had foreordained, used those evil acts of men to bring salvation to the lost because our God is that big. And what Peter was getting at was this. You thought you were doing something evil, and you were. But even your evil choices were part of God's plan. You say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with our hearts that are so confused by the providence of God. Because even the God who governs this world came into this world, submitted himself to the providence of his heavenly Father, and died on a cross and suffered at the hands of evil men and at the hands of his heavenly Father so that he could save us. And the Bible says to us in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3 that that same Jesus, that same Jesus whose hands were nailed to a cross, that Jesus is the one who is upholding everything by the word of his power. And when the Bible says that Jesus is upholding everything by the word of his power, we think that the word uphold means just, you know, to hold something up, like just to pick it up and hold it. But it actually means to carry it along. You see in Psalm 104 that God is taking everything somewhere and where is he taking it he's taking it where he takes it in this psalm to a crescendo of praise where we say lord we want to see you rejoice in your works that's psalm 104 verse 31 that's a weird saying isn't it that god would rejoice in his works we think about rejoicing in the work of god but god will rejoice in his works god will govern everything for his glory for his joy He has not left that to chance. And God has so designed it that His joy, His glory, and your good are wound up together in His plans if you know the Lord Jesus. Because we know that all things work together for good to them that love God who are the called according to His purpose. How do I know God is really in control and how do I know God is really good? I know it because of the cross. There's a lot that we talk about when we talk about the providence of God that We may not be able to understand. But what we can understand is that God has a heart for his people. And that God will go that far to prove how much he loves them. And to prove that he will take care of them. I think about it like this. About two years ago, maybe just a little bit before we moved to Alabama. I got really, really into John Grisham novels. Like addicted to John Grisham novels. And if you've never read John Grisham novels, uh, they are, I guess they're what you call legal thrillers. Okay, they're kind of like junk food for your mind, really. 
And in every novel, there's, there's like this high-profile court case or, or usually almost a young, hotshot lawyer that's going to get in some kind of trouble, and then you're going to follow that case throughout the book. Well, I picked up about five John Grisham novels at a Goodwill store. Do you know how it is at Goodwill store? I think I paid a dime for like five books. And I picked up the one that I'd heard of and that I'd heard was the best called A Time to Kill. Some of you may have read that book or maybe you've seen that movie. Movie, I think it's Matthew McConaughey's in that movie. Um, I think that's who would play me if there's ever a movie based on my life. But all right, all right. Anyway, um, so the story, I don't want to give it away, but the story is, is so captivating right from the very beginning that you read this and you think, how in the world is he going to end this? How in the world can the good guys win? How in the world is he going to pull this off? And it just sucks you in from the very beginning, waiting to see how he ties up all of these loose ends. And when you get to the end of it, you think, man, that is so, so incredible. And it's no wonder John Grisham is like a multi-billionaire. But sometimes when we read our lives, we feel like we're reading a story like that. And we're missing a page here. You're missing the backstory there. You're missing chapter number 7 and chapter number 43 through 59. You're missing huge sections. And you think, how in the world can I put this together? How in the world is any of this going to make sense? How in the world can I ever come to grips and come to peace with what's happening when I'm just missing so many details? But I noticed something about every one of those John Grisham novels. And if you have any kind of novel like this, it's true for every kind of book you can imagine. That almost always on the back cover or the back leaf, there is a picture of the author. And it will say something like, you know, he's usually standing there like with some kind of leather jacket on or whatever, looking all casual, like the photographer just rolled by while he had his foot on a fence post. And it'll say, John Grisham, New York Times, number one best-selling author, born whatever, makes his home with his wife and three charpays in wherever he lives. And it'll give you just this three or four sentence paragraph about the author. As we go through life, we do not always have all the details. We do not always get every chapter. We do not always get every answer. But we know a lot about the author. God has told us his heart. He has told us his character. He has told us every day, when you see the sunrise, that's because I'm the one making it happen. Every time you go to the beach and you feel the water lapping around your ankles, that's because God is doing it. Every time that you put your egos in the waffle, that's because in the toaster, that's because God is taking care of you. And God was working long before you even thought about it to provide for you. And every time you think of the cross, you can think of the Savior who died to take care of your needs. And He did that. Even when it looked like it was out of control, when men were at their worst, God was accomplishing His eternal purposes. And the worst this world could offer, every bit of that fell in line under what God was doing for His people. Now, I'm going to give you about a two-minute bonus sermon because I'm going to be real with you. I love Psalm 104, but I don't like the last verse. You ever watch a movie and you think, man, the ending is just wrong. It's just terrible. Psalm 104 verse 35 says, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Now, he ends good. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. But this kind of post-credit scene, let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more, that kind of drags the whole thing down, don't it? Why does he put this in here? I thought about this. And I realize that the people he's talking about, the wicked or the sinners who will be consumed, those are people who in their their lives 
They set themselves up as their own God against the providence of God, which all of us have done. We've all at some point looked at God and said, thanks but no thanks, I can do a better job at being God than you can. Some of you that are watching or will hear this later, he's talking about you in those verses. Because in your life, day to day, you are rejecting God's right to be your God. You are trying to write God out of the story of your life and the choices that you make and the things that you love, the things that you do. And here we see it made very, very clear that our God will punish those who set themselves up against Him. In fact, the Bible even goes so far as to say in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 16, says that the Lord is exalted in judgment. That God who is magnified in creation and God who is magnified in redemption, His righteousness is still magnified when He punishes those who set themselves up against Him. So here's the question for you today. You may know the words to the song, He's got the whole world in His hands. But I think the second verse says, maybe the third, I don't know, you've got you know, the little bitty baby in His hands. But somewhere along the way it says He's got you and me brother in His hands. Does He have you in His hands? In a precise theological sense, absolutely he does. But have you said, Lord, I want to live my life as if you are my God. I want to trust your care. I want to follow your will. I want to know you. And for those of you that have done that but are struggling right now, maybe you just need to find somewhere today and you need to sing this song to your heart. He's got the whole world in his hands, which includes everything he needs to give you to make sure you're taken care of. It includes all the answers to every prayer you need. It includes anything that you need to be the person God wants you to be, to do what God wants you to do. He's got every bit of that in his hands. The things you're afraid of, he's got that in his hands. The things that keep you up at night, he's got that in his hands. The things that confuse you that you may never understand, he's got every bit of that in his hands. You may not have every chapter. You may not have every page. You may not understand the expositional backstory and motivation of every character in your life. But you do know the author. And you know that the author is going to tell the right story. Let me pray for you now. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish up this service this morning, this is in many ways a simple truth. But in many ways, Lord, it's so complex that we will never fully unravel it. But God, we also know it's so essential that we have to live in it day to day. That this is what the Bible really is all about. It's about our God who made us, who governs this world, and who compels us to live as if He is our God. Help us to do that in faith and in joy. If there's anybody, Lord, that's watching along today that is in some way fighting your rule over them, whatever that might look like, God, I pray that you would change their heart right now. Lord, I pray for your people that are struggling because they're wondering how can you be in control and how can you be good with everything happening in their world and in their life. How can these things be true? God, I pray that you'd help them simply to trust in you that you are God. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for this church service today as different as it is. And Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we go on our way. And we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to thank you for watching along with us today. And again, my name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. If there's anything our church can do for you, please be sure and reach out and let us know. God bless you. Have a great day.